fell right down that rabbit hole So reality is questionable Try but you just can't let it go These two right here put on the show It's paranormal overload with southern hospitality Haunted murder mayhem tip while discussing immortality Locations with a dark past History that comes to life Hillbillies with a knack for Everything that goes bump at night Overthinking if you by yourself These two will have you turning on the lights Mixing in a little comedy to make sure it all fits in just right Hey, Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Story Now here's your hosts Jerry and Tracy Paul Heather Dog Ninja Hey guys, and welcome to episode 302 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. Tracy, we got a fun one lined up tonight. We have a very haunted hotel. Cool. And we have special guest, Becky Ann Galantine from My Bloody Galantine. Nice. It's You're, cool to have a name that rhymes too. Yeah, she's a mortician. Nice. And she travels all around to these, not just haunted places, but like creepy abandoned places. Mm -hmm. And she takes a bunch of pictures and stuff like these cemeteries and stuff. Really cool. You're going to love learning about her. Oh, good. Obviously, we want to first thank all of our allied military forces all over the world and all of our civil servants and our service animals. Thank you for all that you guys and gals do for us. Yes. God bless you guys. You all are just so amazing. We love you. We pray for you guys every single day. Thank you for protecting our country and keeping us safe. Tracy, it's been another week, and it, and it sounds like a broken record, but it's just the way that it is, of people having some difficulties in life. We've had a few people reach out to us, mm -hmm. and, you know, whether it be deaths in a family or... Uh, people in the hospital, or just life in general. Times are tough for a lot of people right now. Mm -hmm. And we're just letting you know, you don't have to feel like you're alone. Uh, Tracy and I are more than happy to talk to you. If you need to talk to someone, just talk to somebody. You know, the group is very active, 5,500 members that if you're not a member of the, the group and you need some support, I highly advise you join the group. Even if you just read what's said to other people, Trust me, you will get something out of it. You will learn that you're not alone. Absolutely, guys. And we, you know, like Jerry says, day or night, we are here for you guys. If you would rather call the 800 number, that's awesome as well. And it is 800-273-8255. You can text them at 741-741. They are really good about being right on top of that. So, you know, you don't have to worry about nobody answering or nobody texting you back because they're very good about that. Uh, you, just reach out. We're here for you guys no matter what. Yes. All right, so before we jump into the story, we have some news that we've already had some confusion on, so I want to make sure that everybody's clear. We changed our hosting company, which means for on our end, we had a bunch of work that needed to be done, and we had to uh, change some things, do some things. But on your end, the listener, it shouldn't make a bit of difference. You mm -hmm. don't have to go anywhere different to listen to us. Just wherever you listened before, nothing should change. Yeah. You know, theoretically, if I didn't say anything, you probably wouldn't know no, any difference. I was just sitting here wondering why you said that. But, oh, probably because you've been so tied up changing things over. Yes. So in case that, we missed Well, that's the story one of the reasons why we couldn't. Well, we mentioned last week that we didn't have an original episode because oh, yeah, we spent so right. much time doing that. But, um, you know, we had 700 episodes. Now, the one advantage that you guys do have 
is we had a lot of people tell us that, hey, your episodes don't start to like episode 113. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of episodes missing. This happened a while back with the with the old hosting company. They only allowed 500 episodes. So they only went with the current 500 or the most current. Yeah. So anything more than 500 didn't get listed. And I got them to bump it up to 600. Mm-hmm. So that was fine for a while. But now we were to, I had over 700 episodes. So it was starting at, I think, episode 111 or 112. Now with the new company, it doesn't matter how many episodes we got. They'll all always be out there. Oh, that's cool. So as of right now, if you were one of those people that started listening, but you had to start on episode 111, 112, or what, even 90 or 80, whenever it's the case, now you can go back and listen to all the old episodes. They're there. Yeah. So, so, so that's, a, that's a benefit that you have is there's a bunch of episodes that some of you may not have heard right. that may be caught up on the show. And now keep in mind, <laughs> we were just starting out, yes. so please yeah, bear with us. Yeah, it's a good us. thing and a bad thing. Yeah, it's, You're going to hear a lot of mouth noises. You're going to hear <laughs> uh, some static. And I was able to fix some of those episodes as I went through and, and heard some static and stuff. I was able to fix it and replace the audio. So some of it would be a little bit better. But in those older episodes, it's, there's no lie. It was rough. <laughs> and we also want to say happy Mother's Day to all you beautiful ladies out there. Hope you all enjoyed time with your family. And understandably, the ones that don't have their mom here, I totally know how you feel. But I'm sure they're here in spirit. And I just hope you all had a wonderful day. And uh, happy Mother's Day to Michael Keaton. Shout out, Mr. Mom. Oh, dang. There you go. <laughs> all right. Let's jump into the story. We're going to talk about the Monte Vista Hotel. And Tracy, Arizona has definitely got its share of haunted locations. And we've talked about several of them here on the show. A lot of them in Tombstone, like the Birdcage Theater, Boot Hill, Graveyard. I was going to say cemetery. Some people call it Boot Hill Cemetery. Some call it Boot Hill Graveyard. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know. But I think Boot Hill Graveyard is the correct way. And in uh, Big Nose Kate's Saloon. Got it. <laughs> Big nose Kate. Yeah, we've talked about her before. Oh. <laughs> it's been more than a couple of weeks, so I don't expect you to remember. Yeah, well, you got that right. <laughs> <laughs> Today's location, though, may actually give all those a run for their money. So we will be virtually traveling to Flagstaff, Arizona, right on the infamous Route 66. Mm. So Flagstaff is about two hours north of Phoenix. And trust me, there is no shortage of ghosts. Here at the Monte Vista Hotel. From best of what I could dig up, about 11 ghosts oh, in wow. the hotel. That's pretty good size. Yeah, that's that's uh, very well stayed. They could probably book most of the rooms. Yeah, definitely. So let's get into some history on the Monte Vista Hotel. It was built in 1927. It's a four-story brick Spanish colonial style building. And you know how I love Spanish colonial style buildings. Yeah, hey, you do that. That's why I love going to St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. The section that the hotel sits on now is the Railroad Edition Historic District in downtown Flagstaff. So that little area of downtown Flagstaff actually has its own name, which is, like we said, it's called the Railroad Edition Historic District. And it's, like I said, it's a nice little patch right there that it's on. Now, that, that district right there mm-hmm. was actually put on the National Register of Historic Places itself. Not oh. just one building, that area in 1982, I think it was. Very I didn't write cool. it down. But... Well deserved, I'm sure. Now, the actual hotel was put on the National Register of Historic Places in 1973. Okay. It's one of the few buildings left with the Spanish colonial style architecture in that area. 
Now, that style can be seen inside and out with its terracotta, cast concrete, and decorative iron. It also has the rounded doors and windows on the inside. Oh, nice. Yeah, I like that. I do, too. On the first floor is a lobby, a coffee, and the lobby is actually two stories. Oh, yeah, that's so different. The lobby's got two stories. You've got a coffee shop and a lounge. The guest rooms are all named after famous people who have previously stayed at the hotel. They are all located on the second, third, and the fourth floor. Now, some of the rooms have a shared bathroom. No, I wouldn't like that. Those are called the historic traveler's room, but the rest of them all have private bathrooms. The rooms are all equipped with modern conveniences because they've obviously updated through the years. Though some of the ones we've talked about, like in, um, where was the other place we talked about? Virginia City, I think it was. They had some of those hotels there that they still only had one electric outlet. and No way. The hotel spent a small fortune and invested in luxurious and comfortable bedding. So they've all got nice mattresses and stuff there. Some of these rooms have spectacular views. Now, the bar also has two levels. They have live music on Fridays and Saturdays, like karaoke the mm-hmm. rest of the week. It's like I work for them, Donna. Yeah, it sounds Come on like down. It. Yeah, you're like totally advertising. The lower level is where they have all the music and stuff. The upper level has darts and pool tables and stuff like that. So if you happen to be on the, one of the second floor rooms... Mm-hmm. It's not going to be very quiet. I wouldn't think so. <laughs> so they, they say the rooms that are farthest away in the back are the most quiet. Yeah. And then you're going to have the pool the pool table noise and all yeah. that stuff. All right. So sorry I gave you a lot of information there, but it seems like a super fun place to visit. Yeah, so I was definitely. kind of getting caught up in everything they had to do. Now let's get into some actual history. The hotel came to be because Flagstaff actually had a big influx of tourists in the 1920s. And there was a need for an upscale hotel. So they picked the perfect location right on Route 66 and close to the railroad. Good combination for success. Some very prominent people in the area raised $200,000 and construction started in June of 1926. The hotel would have uh, all the rooms, of course. It had a post office and it housed the uh Coconomo Sun newspaper. There you go. So it's pretty cool. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. There was also a radio show, a three-hour daily show, by Mary Costigan that broadcast out of Room 105 there. Oh. It reminds me of the uh, the Opry radio station that broadcasts out of the Opryland Hotel. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, they got a lot going on there for sure. Mm-hmm. It opened up, here's what amazed me. It opened up on New Year's Day, 1927. Mm-hmm. They didn't start construction until June of the year before. So it opened up like six months after they started construction, a four-story building. Well, how is that possible? I have no idea. But that's, I looked it up at a couple of different places, and that's what it said. So, I don't know. Must have been working around the clock. I would think, but six months seems, seems almost impossible. Well, to you see that home improvement or whatever <laughs> that show is. That is not the same thing. <laughs> When the hotel opened, its original name was the Community Hotel. Boring. Well, that's what everybody kind of thought. It was just kind of a lame, generic name. Yeah. So they eventually had a contest to come up with a new name, and a 12-year-old girl came up with the name Monte Vista, meaning Mountain View. And that's the name they went to. I don't know what her prize was or any of that. Well, that's awesome. 
The hotel lounge was a speakeasy during Prohibition, and they served alcohol that was illegal. What? Yeah, it was illegal. Tunnels were actually dug under the streets, which this was done in a lot mm-hmm. of the areas there. They were dug underneath the street to provide ways to get goods, legal and illegal, to be transported during bad weather. As the town grew, so did the underground underground tunnels, which were built by the Chinese workers at the time. Of course, the hotel had access to the tunnels so they could yeah. move stuff in and out. Some of these tunnels were used to make moonshine. Some of them held gambling machines and opium dens. Damn, sounds like my kind of party. <laughs> it was a very convenient way to smuggle drugs and alcohol. Now, today, these areas are still there, but they're used for storage. In 1931, the feds raided the Monte Vista, and they forced them to close down their lounge slash speakeasy. And it was closed until two years later when Prohibition ended. And they oh. were able to break, break back up. From 1935 to 1940, the Monte Vista had slot machines. They were the only ones in Flagstaff's history. Wow. Now, within those two years, like before it became legal, I guess, I mean, did they did they operate anything at all? or? I don't know. Some of the places, the White, White Eagle Saloon that we talked about that time, mm-hmm. they kind of turned into like a soft drink parlor oh. during the time. I'm guessing they probably yeah. still served yeah, drinks, just, just it wasn't alcohol. Right, right. In the 1940s and 50s, Sedona and Oak Creek Canyon became really popular places to film Western movies from Hollywood. Many of the crews and the actors would actually stay at the Monte Vista. Actors such as Bing Crosby, John Wayne, Spencer Tracy, Gary Cooper, and Jane Russell all stayed there. Very impressive. And I didn't find the names of the rooms. I didn't dig very hard, but Mm -hmm. I'm guessing they probably all have rooms named after them. Oh, They were named after... People who stayed there. The public actually owned the hotel up until the 1960s when it was sold to a private investor. And then in 2018, it was completely restored to its original grandeur. And then just panting like a Sorry, yeah, no. Poor thing. All right, that's enough history. You ready to get into the paranormal? I'm ready. Because there's plenty of it. The first spirit we're going to discuss is that of an elevator attendant. And a lot of these I'm going to breeze through, and then we'll talk about some more in detail a little bit later. Okay. This elevator attendant sometimes will look like a completely solid, real person. He'll ask guests that enter the elevator what floor that he could take them to. He's been seen by guests, housekeeping staff, and the front desk clerks. Sometimes, guests don't see him until they're actually exiting the elevator. That's when they see his reflection in the mirror behind him. Oh. Next, we're going to talk about the spirit of a bank robber. Now, the story goes that the bank robber died in the lounge. He loved the hotel's bar while he was alive. And since that was his last place, he likes to show up. He's apparently pretty friendly. He likes to greet the guests and the staff with a... Good morning. Well, that's nice. The bar has also had drinks move on their own accord and stools that will be moved. (laughs) Both of these occurrences are blamed on the dead bank robber. 
some of these spirits are former long-term tenants. Because like a lot of these hotels, especially back then, some people would stay almost like it was an apartment. Oh, like a month or so or whatever. Yeah. Okay, got you. Most of them apparently really enjoyed their stays enough to spend some time here in the afterlife. Well, that's good. One of these was a very eccentric man who liked to hang meat in his room. Oh, yuck. That's right. That's what I said. He no. liked to hang meat in his room. <laughs> <laughs> what hotel would be good with this? Think about that. Do you know any hotel that would be good with this? No, never. When I tell you more about it later, you're even going to be more shocked. I mean, how can he keep the meat or the room that cold anyway? I don't know. I don't know. Sicko. This was in room 220. And sometimes when that room is empty, guests and staff can hear coughing and other noises that are so loud that they disturb and annoy the other guests or people passing by. Oh. If they're not right next to his room, but the staff and stuff hears the same things as the guests. Now, the maintenance man has had to make several repairs to the room after the man passed away. Because they had to get it ready for other guests. Yeah. Well, while he was in there, he had to leave for a few minutes to go take care of some stuff. He turned off the lights and he locked the door. When he returned, the light was back on, the sheets were all pulled off the bed, and the TV was on full blast sound. And nobody had been in the room. Yeah, well, that's just a little bit creepy. Let's jump to room 310. They've got a few spirits. Two ladies, as a matter of fact, two ladies of the evening that were killed in that room. Supposedly, these two do not like men. Women who stay in the room are sometimes awakened in the early morning hours with the feeling of being watched. The men, though, that's a completely different story. They are awakened by a feeling of a hand covering their mouth and around their throats. <laughs> well, if that's the men that killed them, that's what they get. Well, this gives them the sensation of being, not being able to breathe, and this is how the two uh, working ladies were murdered. Oh, with their hands, somebody, their hands around their neck? Yeah, I guess they were choked, strangled. Aww. The feeling goes away as soon as the men fully wake up. So it's almost like a sleep paralysis type situation. There is the spirit of a small boy that may not realize that he is even dead. He likes to play in the halls, and it's said to be very friendly and happy. He will sometimes walk behind the staff and guests, and there's oftentimes he appears to be talking to someone, perhaps his mother. He will sometimes touch people on their hand, and he appears mostly to children possibly looking for someone to play with. I mean, I wonder why nobody's told him, son, you've, you're passed on. Take well, it, move on. I don't think anybody really knows who he is. They don't know. They just know there's a little boy, but they don't know who he is to even, I guess, help with that aspect of it. Oh. In the basement area, there are terrifying screams of a baby, and it scared several people to go running from the basement. The basement has other things, as we'll discuss later. One of the more recent spirits is that of a man known as the Shadow Man. Now, he stands a little over six feet tall. And what's odd about this one is he's kind of a menace. That's not the odd part. The odd part is the fact that he acts almost like a supervisor. 
He likes to oversee the delivery men and the staff who go into the basement. So you got him in the basement and you got the screaming baby in the basement. Oh. Needless to say, most of the employees don't like going to the basement. Oh, I wouldn't like it either. There's a female apparition who's been seen sitting by the window rocking in a rocking chair. Guests and staff have seen the rocking chair rock by itself and also heard scratching coming from the closet in that room. We're going to talk a little more about that one a little bit. So another female spirit that likes to wander around the hallway, but she's typically only seen right beside room 210. Okay. And while we're talking about room 210, it's said that a former bellboy is still delivering food to that room. I'm not sure why it would be fixated on just that particular room, but guests in room 10 will be um, disturbed or awakened or whatever the deal is by a knock at the door. But there's never anyone at the door. Sometimes the guest will clearly hear someone say, room service. Again, they go to the door, nothing there. Other time, people will see an apparition of a bellboy who will be standing right there in the hallway, but then he'll slowly fade away. Do you got food? In, uh, invisible food. I'll be you can't dead. eat it, it's ghost food. <laughs> well, you wouldn't gain any weight that way, I reckon. You'd knock on the door and say it's room service, and you open the door to find out you've ghosted. Yeah. <laughs> He's probably wondering why he's not getting any tips. No. <laughs> People with pets are not given this room because it drives pets crazy. Oh, wow, I bet. It's a lot of different ghosts already in it. That's a bunch of ghosts. And we're not through yet. There's a couple that appears as two transparent people, man and a woman. They're dressed in formal wear, and they dance around the dance floor. Most think that this is a residual haunting because the couple has never interacted with anyone that's alive. Oh, that's cool, though. All right, so I told you I was going to add to some of these stories because I just kind of breezed through them. Let's talk about the meat man because mm. that's how he's known. This man actually stayed there in the 1980s. We talked about what hotel would allow a man to hang meat in his room, and this was in the 1980s. It would have been unimaginable, you'd think, in the 20s and the 30s. That is, must have been some good drugs. I don't know. He would hang the meat from the chandelier. A lot of times it would be a chicken or a turkey is what I t was told. It was like poultry for the most part. He actually died in that room. Okay. What was the point of hanging meat from a chandelier? I have no idea. I have no idea. They were naked meat? Like he plucked them and... I mean, I guess... He was just hanging meat. It didn't matter, really, if it's plucked or not. That You're is... hanging meat from a chandelier in a hotel room. God. That's the most bizarre thing I've heard. He was listed as eccentric, but I think that was a really nice, nice way. Nice word, yeah. Because it, when I think eccentric, it's usually somebody who's got a lot of money. Mm -hmm. that just does crazy stuff. Has weird little things about him, mm -hmm. like Howard Hughes. Mm -hmm. I don't think eccentric about a guy that stays in a hotel and hangs meat from the, no, from the chandelier. No, that's bizarre. Right, we talked about room 210 a few seconds ago. We also mentioned that a bunch of actors stayed at the hotel while shooting westerns. John Wayne stayed in this room, and he had a run-in with the infamous bellboy. Uh-oh. He heard room service, and when he opened the door, no one was there. He reported the ghost to the staff on more than one occasion. <laughs> I mean, 
What can they do about it? I guess nothing. <laughs> you know, we've taken him off the payroll 37 years ago. I don't know what you, else you want us to do, Mr. Wayne. <laughs> and we also mentioned the young lady in the rocking chair. Turns out she's not a young lady. She's an older lady. And that room is room 305. That rocking chair is still there. No kidding. This is actually one of the most active rooms in the hotel, and it once belonged to an elderly, long-term resident. While she was alive, she was always seen in that chair looking out the window to the street. Now, it's advised, if you stay in that room, to not sit in that rocking chair unless you ask permission first. What? Everyone from guest to housekeeping have seen that chair move on its own. And then, of course, you got the scratching in the closet, which nobody can figure out. I wonder what would happen if you didn't ask. What would what happen if you took the, the chair and put it in the closet? Ooh, good question. Let's go back to room 310, the room where the ladies of the night were killed. This happened during the 1940s, and Flagstaff's red light district was only a few blocks from the hotel. The story goes that the two girls were brought to the hotel they were strangled and suffocated and then thrown from the third floor window to the street below. Oh, wow. That is not a good way to go. No. A little more on them, so. Then, we talked about the bank robber earlier. Here's how this story goes. In 1970, three men robbed a bank that was near the hotel. One of the three was actually shot by the bank guard as they were trying to mm -hmm. make their getaway. Despite the injury, all three went to the hotel bar and celebrated the bank robbery. Because, you know, that's what you do. You stay in the area where you just robbed a bank and yeah. celebrate, even with gunshot wounds. Yeah, you got some big kahunas right there. Well, that man bled out at the bar. <laughs> so that's what happened to him. Um, shocking. Yeah. So let's talk about the elevator attendant. Monte Vista Hotel was one of the very first self-service Otis elevators in the state of Arizona. Oh. Even though it's since been modernized, the attendant is still on his shift. On some occasions, the staff has witnessed a phantom hand closing the elevator gate. <laughs> and that's what very we got. Very interesting. On the Hotel Monte Vista. Yeah, Actually, Monte Vista Hotel. Bunch of crap going on up in there. So, all right, let's take a quick break from our sponsor. Then we've got a couple of things to update you on. Then we're going to listen to Becky and Galentine. You guys are going to like this. She's fun. All right, live events. Uh, only one we're going to talk about is, of course, we've got the live event in Indianapolis coming up in July with our friends at the Tragedy of Cinema. And, of course, Middle-Aged and Creeped Out. That's going to be fun. Tickets are only $20 a piece. Go to hillbillyhorrorstories.com. And grab that one. That venue, I think, only seats 60 people. It's another VFW, so the money's going for a good cause. As far as the uh, renting the hall, of course, uh, we always make some extra contributions when we're ever out there. Yeah, ourselves. perfect. I love doing our shows there. Yeah, so do that. Um, also, I talked to Robin Troop from Vacation Experts. We are still have a couple of spots available on the cruise. You've got a really short time to get it paid for. I think it's got to be paid for... Is it the end of June or end of July? I think July. End of July. So you still got a couple months, and, and uh, there's still some rooms, and some of the cheaper rooms are still available. Oh, cool. So uh, once again, go to hillbillyhorrorstories.com, and you'll have the uh, 
cruise link on there. You can go there. The Robin's phone numbers there, uh, videos of the rooms and everything, so you can kind of see what's going on. And last but not least, starting next week sometimes, Hibbley Horror Stories line of food products will be available. Mm-hmm. We're actually getting the first batch in supposedly Tuesday, but we've been able to approve all the labels on it and all that. It's going to be several different types of conserves, which are basically preserves. They just don't have the chunks in them. If you ever had ras- or like um, strawberry preserves, it usually has the little parts. Mm-hmm. of These don't have the parts. They've kind of been smoothed out. They use a puree, a puree and then they make it so you don't have all the chunks in it. But it's the same thing. It's jelly jam preserves. It's all the same. I was going to say, well, I don't see the difference. It's, it's not really. But we got about five different types of that. We've got some uh, chow chow. We've got some couple different sauces, some mild and some uh, uh, hot. Some of the jellies are hot. They've got like a peach habanero. Then we've got three different types of barbecue sauces. We've got uh, sugar-free apple butter. We try to get more sugar-free stuff, but there, we only had one option mm-hmm. for sugar-free anything, and that was the apple butter. So we did get that. And then we've got some salad dressings. Yep. So... A little bit of everything. It'll be fun. I think we've got 18 different products when it was all said and done. And uh, we'll, once we get those in, we'll get some pictures and give people sizes and put a price list together. And you'll be able to order it online. We'll be able to go there and pick stuff out. And, get people sizes? Yeah, because the the they want to know how many ounces like the jelly is. Oh, and know. I was like, what in the world are you talking about? Sorry, my yeah, bad. So you know how big the items are. I got but you. they're all going to be, you're going to get a lot for the money. Trust me. Because I paid before like 10 bucks for eight ounces of jelly mm-hmm. at some of these places, like when we go to Old Mill and stuff like that. And I know this is, I think, 20 ounces mm-hmm. of the jelly, and it'll probably be 10 bucks. So can't beat it. That's going to be fun. And we'll have them at all the live events and when we go to uh, Comic Cons and stuff like that. We'll have them there too. So Yeah, we sure will. All right, Tracy, what you got over there? Okay, uh, <laughs> this week on iTunes, we have our good old buddy Mojo Lobster, DJ Fett 7509, and NGRB. You guys rocked it out with the uh, reviews this week. Thank you guys so, so much. Our Patreons, we have Randall Pear, Brian Reed, and Catherine Krause. Thank you guys for your support. We appreciate y'all so much and for taking your time out of your day to leave us reviews and so forth you guys are awesome yeah i agree 100 percent. yeah all right guys let's listen to becky and galentine hey guys i am very excited to have this guest on today i have got becky and galentine from my bloody galentine if that's not a heck of a name becky thanks for coming on thank you so much for having me all right, so let's let's jump right into this. First of all, my voice is probably shot because it's earlier in the morning and we normally do these things. I barely got my hair and makeup fixed, but uh, we're going to go with it anyway. You have tons of stuff that I want to get to. Let's first talk about My Bloody Galentine. Tell me how that started and for those listening, what exactly that is. My Bloody Galentine is the social media handle that I use for my presence on platforms like Instagram and TikTok. It was really just kind of like a name I gave myself for a long time until I moved to New England in the peak of the pandemic to pursue a mortuary internship. And when I moved here, I couldn't make friends because we're in the middle of a pandemic and I'm not going to go. All the bars were closed. It was scary times. Like nobody was 
was even traveling from state to state. So with these um, sanctions on the borders, I had to find a new way to at least somewhat stimulate myself and go outside. So I started this kind of socially distant spooky travel blog and I started trying to push the limits of what I could experience I'm typically someone who was like I'm not going there like I, I used to get afraid of the dark and it just progressed to being more and more brave in the beginning so I think the first thing that I had posted was Salem Massachusetts which is a pretty common tourist spot and when I posted it it went viral and then I went to an abandoned Christian theme park. And then it finally just started pointing me towards uh, like haunted locations. I was working very hard, like long hours, 9am to like eight o'clock at night. And the only reprieve I got during the week was visiting these unique locations on my days off and going and staying at a nice haunted bed and breakfast and seeing what would happen and exploring all over New England. And that's how I really started making connections. And a lot of them came from the internet. Now that things have kind of let up, I'm finally meeting a lot of those people, but it was basically born out of fear. Um, and I think every at the beginning of the pandemic, everything was so scary and the things I was experiencing at my job were so frightful that it made the things that used to scare me, like the dark and what was composed of the afterlife, it seemed way more approachable. And as people saw it go on, they're like, whoa, like what's going on with Becky? Because I, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you're so brave. And it's like, no, I'm terrified, but I'm pushing myself to do it. And now, now I've learned and often say, I walk comfortably with death through all of this. So um, on TikTok, I've gained around 500,000 followers and around 50,000 followers on Instagram within like two months of doing what I was doing. It was like, I was getting called for news features. And I'm like, what's happening? I'm just talking about things <laughs> that both talked about. Like it, it was really, I really feel like at this point the rug was pulled under me, but the one thing I'll say about that, I do call it my bloody Galentine. Obviously that's a reflection of myself, but the videos I post, I rarely include my face in them because I want these people's stories that came before us to be seen. I think it's about the people and the history. And I think we do see a lot of people who are kind of mesh themselves with the story, but it, it's not about me. It's like, hey, did you know this happened to this person? And they went through this. And um, at this point, I've used my platform to donate to um, certain communities that have been marginalized for a long time. And um, draw attention to injustice injustices that were done to people in their deaths um in early america and i'm like i can't believe i can talk about this comfortably knowing that a lot of people aren't talking about it and give back to these communities in this way so it's really become like a growth project for me that's fantastic and i'm, I'm glad to see that you're using uh we'll call it fame because that's what it is but you're using that to bring attention to these injustices and you're, you're using the financial part to kind of help make a difference because not everybody would do that. So that makes you a special person in my eyes. So let me ask you this. You started doing these little spooky little jaunts all on your own. Do you mm -hmm. think you would have done that had you not been in the, uh, uh, the mortuary field and spent so much time around death or do you think it would have happened anyway? I have thought about this a lot. I've thought about if I had not moved up here and been a mortician, would I have done this? And I think the answer is definitely yes. I 
I pursued the mortuary field after a close friend of mine passed away. I wanted to learn about what happened to her. And through my journey as a mortician, I was thinking dead is dead. But there were times like in mortuary school where people had said things like, you know, I have a ghost experience. Why would someone in, in the mortuary field say something like that if we're the ones who are supposed to help people navigate grief? However, if we wind back and we start this journey and I never went to mortuary school and I started pursuing this, I was still interested in the paranormal. I still had paranormal experiences um, that I kind of pushed off when I was studying biology. And I think that I wouldn't have the same respect because in the back of my mind, when I go to these, pla these places, I think about them the same way I think about someone whose family member is in my care. I think these are people, I don't care if this is two, 300 years ago, but I think we can all have fun. I think, I think it's really interesting to see how New England embraces this culture. We, we have after hours ghost tours in the cemetery. We have like people dressing up and doing reenactments in the cemetery and it's very respectful. It all comes down to intent. Do I think people would see me as being as respectful as I am or as thoughtful as I am had I not gone through the mortuary field? Absolutely not. I think there's, there's stuff that I gained from that, things that I've seen from other cultures, um, the humbling that has happened from other cultures entrusting me in the care of their loved one, knowing that I obviously did not grow up in that culture, um, being trusted to um, go through with certain acts, like, for example, um, aiding a family in dressing in the sari, uh, you know, for other cultures, it's, um, you know, very sacred to them and participating in things like that has humbled me. And when I speak about other people and their deaths and other people who seem to have what we would call weird histories, um, or people call them, you know, like morbid histories, it's like, let, let's think about this, unpeel the, unpeel the onion that is grief and, and actually think about what motivated this to happen. And I'm glad I have that perspective. That's awesome. Now, you know, you're the third female mortician that we've had on the show. And I've often discussed that it's a hard field for most females just because of the nepotism and, and other things that, that go along with it. I think one of the reasons you were successful is, and this isn't to take away from some of the others, because one of the other ones actually owns her own company, but it, I think what makes you stand out and gives you a leg up is you do have, uh, you've got a lot of confidence in your abilities, you know what you can do, but you were telling me one of the things that really helps you out is you have, uh, you've learned a skill from, from a specialist in the business. Uh, tell me a little bit about that skill, because I found this fascinating. So when I pursued my apprenticeship, the person offering it to me had it, it is a really skilled, what's called a reconstructive artist. And the people, I am nowhere near this person's skill, but the fact that I'm able to do it instead of closing a casket, again, this is a humbling thing. And right now, as I step away from the industry, it's one of the loudest voices is I'm able to do things that some people are unable or haven't had the opportunity to be shown. And I do hope to get back to using that. But um, these people can actually, if, if someone is in a really traumatic accident and their skull is shattered and the family thinks there's no way they can be seen, they can actually take the skull and use like drills and wires and 
reconstruct the skull to its natural form as close as possible. And this means get improvising, grabbing paper mache, mesh, like literally anything you can. Um, and, and one thing that some of the best people in the field, they're like, we don't just put whatever in someone's skull. We will go to the store and buy the things we need to get this person to be able to be viewed by their family. And these cases, although few and far between, they are the ones that stand out. And the ones that I participated in, um, they start at, let's say nine o'clock in the morning and end at 10 o'clock at night. This is hours of work to get it the way you want. It's frustrating. Some things don't pan out the way you thought they would. It's just, you know, you get close to the end result and you're like, this is not good enough. And at the end of the day, it's like more than anything, we wish we could take the whole thing back and just make the person alive, which we can't, but we can allow them to say goodbye. So it, it's a master skill and I respect the people who pursue it and are innovating in that um, aspect of it. And I'm thankful because I know that no matter where I go in the country, I can say, hey, I'm able to do this. That's pretty awesome. That truly is an artist without a doubt. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you you go to all kinds of different places. It's uh, spooky places, haunted places. But you had mentioned something earlier that was a term I don't think I've ever heard before. You had mentioned you go to places that and you associate it with alternative forms of grief. Give me a couple of examples of what you mean by that. So there are two that stand out in, in my mind. One of them, it was something that I independently researched and it occurred in New York. This man had passed away during the you know, tuberculosis pandemic and he was scheduled to be married. He had a fiance and he was a count. Um, count Matt, Max Bakowska was his name. And his fiance wanted to pursue the wedding. He didn't have money left. When he came here, he kind of distributed his wealth between his aunt and his mother and took care of them. So there's no financial gain from this wedding taking place. And obviously a dead person can't say I do, but what the family chose to do is they stood Max up in his coffin and they sat him in their living room. Um, the address, I was able to track it down. I was able to track down the crypt where he was kept. And even the people who maintain that crypt were like, "Woo, that's a new story for a tour. We, didn't, we had not heard this before. And they stood him up, she dressed up for the wedding and they took these photos and they, they held a wedding and they had a party with his deceased remains propped against the wall. And a lot of people said that they didn't believe me. And I was like, the news reported on this. I tracked down, I traced the steps back to the crypt where he was. I traced the apartment where they lived. It was, it was like one of those, you know, townhome kind of things. And I was like, this happened. And at first you go, oh my God, th this is absolutely, you know, macabre. And why would someone do that? But then you think she wanted to pursue these wishes. She was probably so consumed with grief. It was better to just go on with the wedding that was supposed to occur than to just bury him and forget about it. So when I say, you know, these alternative processes of grief, it's easy to judge, but I, I like to share ones like this because I think it makes people go, wait a minute, maybe this person down the street hasn't been grieving too long, or maybe the person that's still wearing her husband's old sweater, maybe that, that isn't so strange. And it, it's opening eyes and allowing people to be compassionate towards something that 
it, it's not easy. One of the things I learned in mortuary school that looking at someone who's experiencing grief is more difficult than any other emotion. You can look at someone angry. You can look at someone happy. That's easy. But looking at someone who's sad and trying to navigate it without picking up on some of that yourself, that's, that's challenging. Another, another really um, powerful story I had found was it was actually reported the first time I had heard about it was on um, J.W. Ocker's Odd Things I've Seen blog, and I wanted to explore it a little deeper. And it's this girl named Virginia Tonkin in New York. And what had happened is her, she had passed away and her family chose to keep a glass coffin in the house with her remains in it in like this kind of quartered off room. And while they were building the mausoleum, they said, we're just keeping here until her here until the mausoleum is being built. Now, they did have receiving vaults during this time. So they're able to store her in a receiving vault, but they wanted to protect, protect her in this situation. And once the mausoleum was construction, constructed, over a year had gone by and they still weren't really willing to bury her just yet so it's kind of interesting that they were just like well we've had her here this long enough uh we've had her here long enough they had put flowers around the room for the the smell and they they weren't trying to just let her go at this point they'd become too attached and finally I guess the police kind of stepped in and they they set her in the mausoleum and and you would think that was the end of the story but it actually wasn't they ended up getting a stalker for one of their other girls this family could not catch her catch a break. But the reason I liked exploring the story and seeing the mausoleum and the house that they kept her in was because it's like, is that weird? You know, you think about a rose for Emily and some of these classic stories that seem like fiction. It, what is so wrong other than our westernized view of death to keep someone's remains in your house? It's not like they were sleeping in there with her. They just, they, they kept her in this sacred area, you know, and it became her final resting space. We have such a strict view like someone dies and then we put them in the ground or we cremate them and I think opening our eyes to not everything works for everyone would do a great service to people who we have what is psychologically termed as complicated grief maybe it's just someone who needed something that westernized culture could not provide for them I mean and you see that in other ways I mean you have people who uh, they cream, cremate their loved ones and they keep them in an urn so they're closer to them. You you know, my uncle, when when his wife tragically passed away, he would walk a literally a mile and a half to the cemetery every day. That was part of his grieving process was the walk up and back. He would stop and get a cup of coffee and he would sit up there on a bench at the uh, at the cemetery right next to her grave for literally hours. And this went on for months before he finally started tapering it back a little bit. So everybody does have a different grieving process. It made me think when you were tell, talking about the first story with the wedding, it reminded me of that island in Indonesia where they uh, dig up their dead like once a year, every year and have like a festival and stuff with them. You know, that's the first thing I thought of was, you know, how strange it is to the rest of the world that this one place sees nothing wrong with that. And, right. you know, but it is a different viewpoint depending on where you're at. Yeah. I mean, there's other cultures that do, you know, instead of burying, they put the people on the mountain and let the vultures uh, just 
pick away and there's Viking funerals. It it's all comes down to what the mourners need. And uh, I've said this before, but this is why I say that the mortuary field makes me understand this stuff. And had I not had that experience, I would maybe just say, how weird is this? But instead I'm like, put myself in their shoes. This was not them trying to get a laugh or get tabloid fame. This is how they were trying to cope in a society where they didn't have other people to help them navigate it as much. We have experts on grief now. So um, now, you know, this translates in paranormal investigations because I think about things in this way. I think about, you know, if I'm truly communicating with who I think I'm communicating with, um, I think about what they might have been going through in with a different lens. I think that kind of goes back to the Victorian days where they would have the paintings done of people after they passed away and, you know, the pictures, the photographs that they would do with the dead family members. I mean, it's just it's things today that we see as, like you said, either macabre or morbid or just plain crazy that was perfectly normalized back at that time. Yeah, yeah. And that was one of the points of contention, actually, when I shared the story of the man who was stood up in his coffin for photographs, they said, well, the Victorians didn't prop them up. And I said, true, but this is a documented case where they did. The, the receipts are here. It was, it was widely publicized in the local papers that they propped him up. And I said, I don't know what they did. Um, I, I definitely would assume he had been embalmed. They actually named the undertaker. Um, I don't know if he was strapped in or what, but there are cases where that happened. And I don't think it was to make him look alive. It was just to, you know, follow through with the wedding. So, um, you know, the postmortem photography, one thing I'll say is through, I know we're all sick of hearing about the pandemic, but through the beginning of the pandemic, we did see a revival of that. And more and more, we see people taking photos of their deceased loved ones. And I love it. I'm here for it. You know, other people have said, I've heard whispers in the industry, oh, what do you think when someone walks up with their cell phone to a casket? And I'm like, I don't, I don't get to think on this. This is their choice to make. And if that was their mother, I think it's good for them to be able to go back and say, I need to remember the worst day of my life. I need to look at that because they're so consumed with grief. They don't get the chance. And I actually saw someone who had hired recently. Um, there was an article on someone who had hired recently a photographer for a funeral. And she was so thankful because she couldn't even remember when her husband died that so-and-so showed up for there or like, you know, who actually attended and what flowers she received. And um, I do think we're kind of heading back to that. COVID obviously forced us to because people couldn't even see and people couldn't risk coming in. So we were taking photos for a lot of people and um, it's not pleasant to talk about, but there have been times where we've done it for people who had lost an infant. So um, I think people should be able to have those photos. I don't think it's denial. I don't think anyone's trying to make anyone look more pleasant than it is, but it is um, important that when you're blocking out this very horrible thing that you can look back on it with a with clarity, like this was what I experienced. And over time, you revisit it maybe less and less, but it's still good to have that. I know my wife's father passed away three years ago, and we got a couple of pictures of her at the casket with her hands on top of his hands. Just, you know, I had never been one that really, I, I've seen people before that took pictures at funerals and 
you know, I've, I've never really had an issue with it, but, but I, I, I always thought eh, that might be a little, I don't know if I would do that or not, but, you know, to each their own. But, you know, in this situation, when it was right there on, in our situation and not just, you know, somebody whose funeral I was attending, it made more sense when it was more personal. So I can definitely understand why people would do that. Yep. It's definitely a little easier to understand when it, you know, it affects it, you know, you're in those shoes. And I think that's what I want to convey, convey to people is that, yeah, it seems weird from the outside, but imagine if you were in. And um, I think at first people whipping out a cell phone, it's easy, especially for the older generation to look and say, oh, just some young kids can't even put their phone away at a funeral. And it's <laughs> like, uh, you don't know why they're taking those photos. I don't think it's so they can post it on Snapchat or Twitter. It's because they want that memory. And that's how we know how to take photos. Now, if I set up at a funeral with a formal camera and stood back and composed it, that's not any more valid than someone who lost a parent and taking a picture with a cell phone. Let's talk about a few of the places that you've been. And let's talk about some experiences that you've had, because we discussed that earlier when you went to mortuary school and your reaction to people saying that they had had some experiences. But I know you're a paranormal investigator as well now, so you've had your share of experiences, I'm, I'm sure. Let's go to a place that you were at very recently, Hooded Grave Cemetery. Is, <laughs> is there a backstory to that name? Because that seems like a very odd name for a cemetery. So this is actually not... Um, considered a haunted location, but it does have lore attributed it, it attributed to it. And the thing we need to consider here is attributing lore to something may actually create a projection of that energy or those feelings when people enter that space. Hooded Grave Cemetery was originally founded as Mount Zion Cemetery. So that's kind of a nickname, but it looks beautiful on the sign. And it's in the mountains of Catawissa, Pennsylvania. Most people haven't heard of it. It's not listed on like Atlas Obscura or any of these websites. So it's really a, a true treasure. And it features a series of graves. There's two presently, one for Azanath Campbell and Sarah Ann Boone. And they have some of the only mort safes in the country. Now, there's a lot of, um, especially because they reached a level of virality this year, uh, mort safes on, online. People have speculated, were these for witches or vampires? What, what What's the deal here? And for the for most of the cases, especially in Europe, these were designed to prevent grave robbing. So they are typically wrought iron cages over a grave and they're lower to the ground. What's unique about the Catawissa cage graves are that they kind of look like a bird cage. They're very ornate. There was originally three. All of the people who had them died within um, a specific time span, especially the two that are in, in existence. They died in 1852 and they look like bird cages. I don't think they'd really be great at keeping someone out. Um, the third one was removed due to damage. But the interesting thing is, although people have suggested why they're there, um, there hasn't really been specific documentation of that. So it's been passed down. People have speculated on find a grave and, and such. So we don't know if it was to keep animals out if it was to prevent grave robbing, which is valid, or if they're just decorative, which, you know, I kind of have this feeling. And everyone who's local to the area has some sort of story. They think it's werewolves, witches, <laughs> vampires. I've literally heard every variation of this. They said, we call those the witches graves. And that's why I went to explore it because I'm like, what's going on here? And 
what I think is genuinely that they were just beautiful. Um, it, it didn't really coincide. I don't think grave robbing would have been a specific kind of threat in this area. It's kind of like secluded. So, um, but I did have someone who said that they were in their lineage and they found something that said that it was for grave robbing. But again, there's no definitive documentation on what's going on there. And for those of you who want to take a look at this, my bloody Galantine, just like Valentine, but with a G, uh, go to the, uh, I saw the some video that you actually posted on, on Instagram. I'm sure you've got it up on TikTok as well. Yep. But it's it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, and uh, I could see, you know, why, why somebody could do that as an ornamental thing. But the grave robbing thing just seems to make sense to me. And, I, and that's what I've typically heard over the years. Like you said, there's that famous picture that's floating around the internet that I think it puts vamp, <laughs> that it's a vampire or something on there. But yeah, that's, that's, you know, similar, but these were, these were actually taller than yeah. the, the pictures I've seen. Usually those were, you know, maybe three, four, five, six inches off the ground, but this, these were actually as tall as the headstones with the headstones, you know, in front of it. It was, uh, it would look like it was more of a design feature than it right. did a, a, a true purpose um, feature. Yep. Uh, I absolutely agree. And the thing is, we'll never know. And um, someone said, again, this is hearsay on the internet, but she said, oh, they were wealthy and this is why. And it's like, all of this can be so lost in translation. That was 170 years ago. But yeah, what's unique about them is they literally look like bird cages. Now, what I did notice is in one of them, the, st the stone, the marble has actually broken in several places. So maybe vandalism. Um, I've seen other caged graves, but they were added later. So it's just a mystery. Um, I love it. I think Pennsylvania, especially in the hills and central PA and all those areas have some of the coolest mysteries that we have. Tell me about uh, a couple of places that you've been to that are your favorite, whether they're just haunted or spooky or just, you know, just a cool place to go. What are some of the ones that stand out from, from your journeys? I talk about this at length, but my favorite place to have visited is in central Pennsylvania in Blue Knob State Park. There is a monument that was placed for two children who went missing in 1856. Um, they had wandered from home. Their dad heard a noise. They went out with the dog. The kids followed behind and dad didn't realize and mom was in the kitchen or something um, when he realized that they when he got back, he realized that they had followed him out. Now, um, it's documented that 4,000 people were searching for these kids. Um, they used dowsers, witches, seers for central Pennsylvania in this time period. I know that there was the spiritualist movement, but they were really exhausting any measure they could. They wanted to find George and Joseph. They were five and seven years old. They're lost in the forest. Who knows what's going on? but they were unable to locate them until April 24th, 1856. So the anniversary just came up and I um, posted a little bit about it. And a farmer claimed that he had a dream by a birch tree past a, a kid's shoe and a dead deer under a birch tree, you would find the children. Now that's a little interesting. It's got a lot of speculation that it was suspicious, but he said to his, his, brother-in-law he said I think that I can find the kids and he told him and they, he goes oh, I know where they are they walk down this little path and they find the kids and this is where the monument was erected they were deceased unfortunately and it's documented that they died from exposure mm. now for me I always held this really close when you go there you feel 
it, it, you feel something. Now I've been to a lot of children's graves. I've obviously pursued like a lot of cases that involved grief in children. And I'm, I'm connected to that because I think it's natural for me as, as a woman and a caretaker to want to, you know, think about these things. And in this, in this place, you just feel like the sacred feeling, but it wasn't enough. And this is one of the reasons I'm thankful that I pursued paranormal investigating because after I visited them the first time, I wanted to go back and I did go back, but I still felt like the connection, like there was something missing. I didn't know how to communicate. I went to a local hotel, the Grand Midway, which was also said to be haunted. And we're doing a tour of the hotel and he's got a painting from the Victorian era of these children. And I'm like, these are my babies. Like, I feel so connected to this case and seeing them there was just like, why am I seeing them? And then I would do something else. And then, you know, I shared the story, it went viral. I'm like, why am I meant to tell this story? So more recently, my friends and I traveled to Ohio and on the way back, I suggested, can we visit them? And we actually have equipment at this point. We get out to this location and I'm like, let's try communicating. We turn on the spirit box and I was like, it's too loud, let's try the Estes method. And what transpired for the next 45 minutes, I'll never be able to explain. I have three solid paranormal experiences. I'm very strict about what I accept is truly paranormal. And this one went down as number three. Uh, what had happened is we started talking and I have the bias that I think the farmer killed them, but that's not what we were getting. And there was a point where my friend said, tell me when to stop so I can look at you and I have the headphones on and I'm blindfolded. So how am I able for, to communicate this she starts spinning in a circle and she is standing facing the monument and I can't see her or hear her and I say stop and I'm like you know I have no idea what's going on I take the headphones off and I was like was anything happening and and everyone's like emotional at this point we're crying the investigation ended with me and I am a very grounded I went to school for science like I understand the scientific method but it ended with me just on the ground kneeling, like basically come up to me. If you want to communicate with me and you're truly present, like come forward, like you are safe. So that will always be one of the locations where I'm like, not only was it a story that was close to me, it's now an experience that's very close to me. You know, it always amazes me, somebody who did go to school, uh, have, you know, scientific degrees, bio biology degrees, and then they get into the paranormal because that's not typical. Typical, those are the people that have been educated to the point to where they almost have blinders on. And if it's not scientific proof, it doesn't exist. What happened to you that, that turned you in a direction that there may be some other things out there that science can't explain? I was in my freshman year studying biology at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and I had my first paranormal experience. And I was pursuing pre-medical biology at this point. So um, the things I was studying were chemistry, again, the scientific method. And what I love about the paranormal is that in science, you replicate an experiment and you get the same result replication, result, replication, result. In the paranormal, replication, maybe result, maybe not. Um, and that's okay. And I love that it's acceptable. It's free form, it's free flowing. Um, so what had happened is I experienced my first paranormal experience. And I remember going up to my biology professor at the time. And I said, do you believe in ghosts? 
because I wanted to know and I wanted someone to tell me. The institution actually has a paranormal society. It was called the PSYUP or the Paranormal Society of IUP. And I did speak to them, but I wanted to hear from my science professor. And he said, that's, that's not real. But I accepted it and I kind of filed it away. But at the end of the day, I knew. I was like, no, you can't just say I didn't experience that. And that was the experience I, I have shared recently um, publicly. I was very private about this one. My first paranormal experience at this time occurred at a cemetery just um, a mile up the road from my parents' house. As a joke, my friends and I were going to go ghost hunting. Um, I was 19 years old. So this is very, like, very beginning. I had a flashlight. I had a point and shoot camera and my cell phone. I didn't know anything about all this fancy equipment. I just knew what I was guessing essentially. And we walked there, which I think walking actually, instead of driving, just having that instant gratification of driving contributed to this ex experience because we did truly want it and put our focus into experiencing something. When we got there, I, I don't even know, I would be embarrassed to what I said. I'm, I'm not sure what conversations transpired. It's not formally documented because I didn't know it was even a field of research. And this is when I said, after about 15 minutes, we're not going to see anything. We turn the flashlight off. We turn the phone off. So disappointed. Camera's off at this point. Nothing is connected. And we're sitting in the true darkness at this point at the cemetery. And I think in my mind, I was like, of course, of course, um, we weren't going to experience anything. Like, of course, this is how this played out. Why would I even expect anything otherwise? And that's when out of the corner of my eye, it it floated almost like a tissue. It was just like this bright blue, it, it wasn't a perfect sphere. And it hovered in between two trees. Now I wrote it off for many years as ball lightning, but I don't think so because it hovered in the trees for, for a while. And I said, guys, did you just see that? And they said, see what? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm freaking out. I just saw something strange. <laughs> and they're like, Becky, be quiet. And while it was in there, in the trees, it changed direction at a 90 degree angle, whatever this is. It didn't shine on the surface. It didn't, it didn't do anything that you would expect like a spotlight or a flashlight, like, hey kids, what are you doing kind of thing. It had this wispy um, energy about it, almost like, not like a ball of fire. It was this bright aqua blue. And I remember seeing it come it, and it was gliding at a perfect straight line in between my friend and I, we jumped in opposite directions. So if he didn't see it, why did he jump? So that confirmation of someone else seeing that allows me to not like essentially gaslight myself into thinking that it didn't happen. And I called my mom, my mom came and picked us up and I was like, I saw something. And, you know, everyone's like, Becky, you're being funny. And um, some of the people from that situation never talked about it again. They acknowledged it in the beginning but then they didn't want to talk about it again. They thought it was something dark. This is why I do what I do, because after exploring grief, after exploring the afterlife for so long and researching, I don't think it was something negative. There are things that occurred at that location that I have a familial connection to. And I feel like it might've been a family member reaching out to say hi. And unfortunately it didn't translate because I have a professor of science telling me that's not what you experienced, even though other people had experienced with me. So I lost interest in science after this. I was staying up until two o'clock in the morning while I was in college, 
going in tired with a Red Bull, you know, wearing sweatpants to class, everything the traditional student isn't supposed to do because I wanted to find more. Of course, that's not how the paranormal works. And you can't just project these experiences. If you could experience that every day, you'd be famous. I'm sorry. And I just didn't know. So I was addicted. I was like, I have to see it. I was taking my friends out. We were sitting on abandoned train tracks, waiting for the ghost train. We're seeing the local haunted cemetery. We are getting scared by the dark and animals or whatever. And it didn't happen again for a long time. And um now I'm glad that I've explored what I did and thought about things the way I did because I that was 100% a paranormal experience and I'm just now able to be public about it. It's funny, I'm, I'm not a big believer in, uh, we'll say orbs. People, you mm -hmm. know, oh, I got this orb in a picture. I got this orb. And I think more times than not, that's dust or it's a bug or it's something. I do think there's sometimes something to it. Now, there is a difference because you use the term sphere. Mm -hmm. And I do believe there have been situations where people have seen literal balls of light move around rooms. You hear about it way too much. I don't consider those orbs. I consider those two completely different things. And it's I've heard several stories involving spheres and cemeteries. You know, we did a story on the San Pedro poltergeist that happened back in the 70s and you know, they had a, I think it was a blue sphere that would just come into the kitchen and bounce around and, and the young lady and her uh, neighbor both saw it and it would freak them out. And I remember her saying, eventually she went back to that house and there was a cemetery that, that was like right behind the house. And I think that's where the former owner was buried at. And she saw the sphere actually leave and it would went into the cemetery and it disappeared at his gravestone. So that one's always stood out as a sphere story. And then there's been some alien type stories uh, where there's been some spheres like that involved. So I do believe that's a whole different phenomenon out there than. than yes. Uh, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but um, I wanted to say 100%. I've looked into those stories that you were talking about, about the spheres coming into the house and circling around and, and exiting. That is exactly what I've experienced. And I've seen that a lot of people have also had this phenomenon something comes down the chimney um etc um but again i also don't believe in orbs and i'm i'm a big debbie downer when it comes to evidence and i'm like i don't want to tell you you didn't experience something but i can tell you right now as someone who has taken a formal photography class condensation light refraction refraction especially with um iphones these days can create an orb and that's why I used to call it an orb, but now I can articulate my experience a little better. But yes, um, I 100% agree with what you're saying. And I've seen other people have experienced this as well. Maybe not uh, an entity that can project or maybe an entity that didn't see re a reason fit to be a full body apparition. Maybe there's some reason that this was not presenting itself in that way. And I think that was why it was easier for me to go lightning. But why would lightning change direction? Right. There, there's just no, and, and I need to stop obsessing about debunking that experience. And even if it were debunked tomorrow, I'm a grounded enough person that I would be able to say, all right, that's disappointing, but I'm not going to leave pursuing the paranormal. Becky Ann Galantine, it has been an absolute blast having you on today. Some fantastic stories I love your enthusiasm. You, you can tell you're so excited about what you do. 
and uh, it's it's refreshing to say the least. Tell everybody how they can keep up with all things Becky and Galantine. Right now, um, if you're looking to follow my adventures, I typically post a TikTok first. If you want like kind of a sneak peek, you're going to go to my Instagram. I use the same handle across all platforms. It's my bloody Galantine, no underscores or anything like that. I don't know what's on the horizon. I can say that a lot of things have changed for me very quickly, and I'm still trying to process what's for me and what's not for me, trying to um, articulate these experiences because I think that I'm realizing now that I'm more immersed in the paranormal that a short 15, 30 second video of evidence is not enough to fully encompass what experience occurred. So I think, especially with the lost children, the Alleghenies, that evidence is going to be, I hesitate to call it evidence, but that experience that we had is going to be put out on YouTube with commentary from everyone, because I think it's a more fair um, way to understand that. So looking forward, there is a YouTube in the works and right now it, it will be announced on either TikTok or Instagram. Do you already have that commentary put together or is that a future project? Um, so we have the video edited. We just have to sit down and comment on what we went through. And the main thing was we were obviously very emotionally charged so I think it's a good idea for the whole team to sit down. This experience was not supposed to be documented. I want to make that um, distinction. Um, so I'm not wearing makeup. I usually don't uh, present myself without makeup. So it when it became so profound, we're like, I guess the vulnerability of not wearing makeup may have contributed to the emotions in this experience. We need to sit down as a team and kind of go, okay, this is what happened. Everyone involved, even the people who are claiming they didn't hear anything, contributed to the energy and the environment. And we just need to say, this is what happened. Because I think without understanding what we were feeling, which was, ooh, that's interesting to going, I need to allow myself to believe this, to progressing to me, sitting on the ground, I've never been this kind of person being like, just come up to me, like, give me a hug if that's what you want to do. Like, I'm like, I look at that footage and people have seen it. They're like, when I see you cry, it, it just broke me. So we just need to be able to navigate people through what they're seeing, especially with the Estes method. Um, it, I don't believe in this um, exact experience that it was truly just the Estes method. Um, there might be something else that occurred that's why you know we need to add the commentary so it'll be coming out but we need a moment to record that stuff awesome my bloody galantine go to instagram go to tiktok follow today i spent probably 45 minutes on instagram yesterday just scrolling through <laughs> the different places you had been and i was just completely amazed at how many cemeteries and spooky houses and it's just so many different things and i, I was completely uh amazed that at all these different locations you've been able to go to and i uh, got to admit a little bit envious so very <laughs> cool thank you becky i appreciate it thank you for having me we'll have you on soon trust me when you get the youtube video out i want to have you back on to talk more in detail about it sure yep i could talk about that all day so thank you so much it's been a, it's been an absolute blast all right guys that wraps it up for this week i hope you enjoyed the episode this week. Uh, sorry about not putting the new one out last week, but should be perfect moving forward. Yeah. Thank you guys for your patience with that. I hope you all have a very blessed week. We love you guys and take care. <laughs>